I was prepared to feel kind of sad this morning because Easter is normally my favorite Sunday of the whole year. It's Resurrection Day. I just love the music, all the people, the whole feel of it. The place is packed. You know, we have five services. There's an electricity in the air, just a spark, a sense of the Holy Spirit as we come together to celebrate Jesus risen from the dead, reigning now in his glorious power. I especially love the sunrise service that we normally hold outside here in the memorial garden. It's usually chilly and it's cold this morning. People are bundled up in their coats. The, the guitar players, their fingers are frozen and I love that. But it just seems right to be in the middle of a cemetery when proclaiming Christ's resurrection. And I was really prepared to feel sad this morning because I knew that it wasn't gonna feel exactly the way today that it's always been because there's nobody here. All the normal things that I look forward to can't happen this year because of our social distancing and the crisis that has afflicted our land. And I was worried that my own sense of loss, of grief over how I wish things could be would sort of hamstrung my ability to celebrate the way things really are. That I'd be weighed down by the heaviness that we're all feeling. But I want to tell you, I don't feel sad this morning. I don't feel sad. I realize that this disjointed feeling, this disequilibrium, this unsettled sense of confusion mixed with fear, it's far more like what that original Easter Sunday must have felt like than any worship service jam-packed with joyful people singing God's praises. No, this is more like the original Resurrection Day. So let's approach it that way. Let's feel the confusion. Let's embrace it. Let's accept the loss and the grief. Let's acknowledge the darkness that kind of hovers over our land, just as it did over the disciples on that first Easter morning. In fact, let's join with two of Jesus' followers who decided the best thing that they could do on that Sunday morning, the best thing they could do now that Jesus was dead and the Jewish Sabbath was over, the best thing was for them to practice some social distancing and get out of Jerusalem as fast as their feet could carry them. Let's walk with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Here's their story from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed those things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Their faces downcast. One of them named Cleophas asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Well, what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers, they handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but they did not see Jesus. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses 
and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And while he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up, returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on their way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. It was a long seven miles to Emmaus, two men walking, and as the sun was sinking, so were their spirits, their hopes were shattered, their minds confused, their dreams were dead. We had hoped he was the one, the Messiah, the one who would solve all our problems, but he didn't. He didn't come through for us. Another letdown, repeated disappointment. Maybe you've walked the same road, the road of discouragement. Maybe you're walking that road this morning. Discouragement, you know, has been your companion this week. Life as we know it has been disrupted. We, what we counted on in the past, you know, to give us a sense of security, all those things don't seem to be as stable, as reliable as before. And normal, we hardly remember what normal feels like. And maybe there was something we were really looking forward to, a wedding, a graduation, some kind of a dream that once rose up in your heart like an eagle, and now it's just kind of crumpled on the ground like roadkill. But you have to go on like these disciples. Their feet were dragging as they shuffle step towards the sunset. Oh sure, there were rumors of an empty tomb, of strange sightings, but who could believe such things? No, you know, intelligent person would fall for that kind of hysterical nonsense. They heard what the women said, that the tomb was empty, that they'd actually seen Jesus alive, but you know, death by definition is irreversible. They had no explanation for the whole situation. Only one thing was clear, the party was over and it was time to get out of town. Now that Jesus was dead and buried, there was bound to be a brutal purge of his followers. You know, whenever I read the story on the road, these guys on the road to Emmaus, I always have to ask, why these two guys? Why would Jesus do that? I mean, he could have chosen to reveal him, his resurrected self to anyone. Why did he pick these guys? They weren't part of the inner circle of disciples. Only one of their names is even recorded in the Bible. We don't ever hear from them again. They don't ever do miraculous things during the growth of the early church. Just a couple of ordinary guys who had pinned their fragile hopes on this man Jesus and who were going home with heavy hearts. Maybe that is why. Maybe it is because they were so ordinary. Maybe Jesus wants the rest of us ordinary people to find someone with whom we can identify in this whole amazing story. Maybe because as we walk this difficult road of life, we can begin to understand the great Easter message that seems too good to be true. 
it is so typical of Jesus that he takes the subtle approach with these two guys. He doesn't overwhelm them with earthquakes, angels, flashes of lightning, heavenly sound effects. There was a real unglamorous quality about this resurrection appearance. Jesus comes to them in their ordinary circumstances. Jesus comes to them in their distress. They're walking down the road and Jesus just joins their conversation as a fellow traveler. In the confusion and in their grief, they don't recognize him when he comes alongside and he asks, what are you guys talking about? Haven't you heard? I mean, they're incredulous at his ignorance. We were hoping he was the one. There is so much emotion packed into those words. We were hoping. We were hoping. It's a terrible thing to lose hope. A hollow, empty feeling when you lose hope. There's an anger that's part of that, feeling betrayed, like you put your trust in someone or something and then they let you down. But there's also a, a self-hatred when you lose hope because you're feeling stupid, feeling like you, know, you held on to it for too long, you should have known better this time. If our hope is in ourselves or in our human institutions, we are quickly finding out how inadequate those things really are how fragile our systems really are, economics and politics and all the rest, how fragile life really is as the mortality rate stares us in the face. Where are you on your own personal hope meter today? Sort of half empty, half full? The longer this goes on, the more important it will be that you have a solid sense of hope, not in yourself, but in the Lord Jesus. Here's a positive plan. Start doing a Bible study on the word hope as it's used in the Psalms, just the Psalms. Read all the verses that talk about hope in the Psalms and you'll be amazed at how often this theme really appears. Take for example Psalm 119. So many verses in there, but just verse 114. You are my hiding place and my shield. My hope is in your word. Psalm 43, 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 33, 20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. But these disciples, they've run out of hope. And they pour out the intensity of their disappointment to a stranger. Jesus must have been, I don't know, holding back a smirk as he listened to their lament, waiting for just the right moment to allow them to see him for who he really was. Maybe they'd notice that his feet you know, like weren't really touching the ground as he walked beside them. I mean, he's as light as a bird, enjoying the freedom of his resurrection body. It was a real physical body, but it was different. Remember when Jesus meets the gathered disciples in Jerusalem, he shows them that he's able to be touched. They, they put their hands in his wounds, that he's able to eat. He takes fish. He's not a ghost, not a disembodied spirit, but he was different. He was able to appear and disappear. He had the kind of body that you and I will have in the great resurrection. Real, but different. But Jesus allows them their time of doubting and despair. Let me say that again. Jesus allows them their time of doubting and despair. This is so important for us today. Doubt and questioning, confusion, even despair, those things are not the opposite of faith. In reality, all of those emotions can be a subset of our faith. These two men they were wrestling with crucial, deep issues in their lives, and they needed solid answers. Religious platitudes wouldn't cut it. The disciple Thomas, you know, he tends to get smeared as being the doubting one, but they all doubted. They all had questions that went too deep to be casually just kind of brushed aside. 
They were all unsure, unsteady. The death of Christ had just rocked their faith like a blow between the eyeballs with a crowbar. They needed more than pat answers and wishful thinking. They needed to know that their faith in Jesus was real. You know, every time we reach for a little bit more of God, every time we're ready to grow deeper in our knowledge and our love of Christ, every time God decides to stretch our faith, kind of grow our faith to new levels, every time there will be periods of doubt that will inevitably be there. A faith that is being stretched will go through periods of doubt and will be stronger in the end. Periods of, of doubt go hand in hand with times of spiritual growth. There's no other way to grow your faith. A faith that never has any struggles is probably one that has never faced the real mysteries of life and the real mysteries of God. Jesus did not see their struggle as a setback. He doesn't see their confusion as a weakness. Their momentary doubts will give birth to a deeper faith. And that's what God is doing in you right now during this crisis. He is stretching your faith to new dimensions, new levels of trusting and understanding, new dimensions of serving and caring for others. Your faith is going to be stronger because of what we are all going through if we decide to listen to the Lord during this time. These two men, they needed to know their faith was real, but more than any religion, the Christian faith stands or falls on the basis of historical facts. The essence of our faith depends on events that took place at a particular time and in a particular place. A solid faith that, that, has no, that disregards facts um, is not really any kind of a faith. And so Christianity is open to historical verification. Uh, and people have tried to disprove the authenticity of our faith, but the accuracy of Scripture has been proven again and again. Archaeology has affirmed the integrity of Scripture in reporting the resurrection of Jesus. It is a real historical event, not a myth, not a fantasy, not just a faith story, but a real historical event. Jesus' bodily resurrection is what validates all of his teachings. Otherwise, he's just another dead martyr. And his resurrection is the only thing that it can explain the dramatic turnaround that changed the disciples from cowards hiding from the police to bold disciples who literally turned the world upside down. The History Channel once did a, a special on the Apostles, and even in their secularized approach, the filmmakers acknowledged that something unexplainable happened to the Apostles. If the resurrection was real, the followers of Je if it wasn't real, the followers of Jesus should have been stamped out like the followers of hundreds of other phony messiahs that populated the ancient world. Most barely get a footnote in the history books, and Jesus would have you know, been relegated to the same trash pile as all the rest except for the resurrection. All the enemies of Christ had to do was publicly display his body and the story was over, case closed. Lights out, drop the mic. They, they, they didn't, they couldn't. Neither the unparalleled military might of Rome or the religious power of the Sanhedrin could produce the corpse. The body they killed, the body they guarded, the body they sealed in a tomb, all they had to do was put it on display and they couldn't. Why? Because it wasn't there. Jesus really did rise from the dead. You see, faith without facts is meaningless. Faith in Christ without the fact of his resurrection is just wishful thinking or self-delusion. The transformed faith of these two men is built on two things, a deeper understanding of Scripture combined with a personal experience of Jesus Christ. The two always need to go together, a deeper understanding of Scripture 
combined with a personal experience of Jesus Christ. And as they walk, Jesus explains the scriptures. This was probably the greatest Bible study ever. From Genesis all the way through Malachi, Jesus helped them to see how all of this was planned. God had it in mind from the beginning. And as they listened, the meaning became clear. Wow, all these pieces, they finally fell together. A deeper understanding of scripture always forms the basis for a deeper experience of Christ. Knowing scripture by itself isn't enough. That can become kind of cold and sterile and heartless. If, if all people have is a devotion to the Bible, pretty soon then the Bible becomes like a club that insecure Christians use to bludgeon others whom they label as unbelievers. True faith requires a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. In verse 32, the men said, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Jesus explained the scriptures to them before he revealed himself to them, as though Jesus wanted them to have this solid biblical foundation before they could handle the experience of seeing him as the risen Christ. It was scripture, absolutely important, absolutely reliable, but scripture along with a personal experience of grace, of Christ's presence, a personal experience of his transforming love. The core of Christianity is not religious propositions, but a person. Not a system of ethics, but a savior. Not a right doctrine, but a personal connection. The mind and the soul work together as scriptures come alive through a personal heart-to-heart -heart experience of the risen Christ. Once Jesus left them, then the men took their faith on the road. They ran a mini marathon back to Jerusalem. They couldn't wait to tell others of their encounter with the risen Jesus. And this is important for us too, the willingness to bear witness to their faith on the road, in homes, in the marketplace, in prisons, in the Roman catacombs. That's how Christianity grew. Under intimidation and persecution, they still shared their faith with joy. You know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, all faith is private, don't talk about it, it's personal. Keep it in the building with the stained glass. You know, I don't know what kind of faith they're talking about because it's certainly not the Christian faith. Following Jesus was always meant to be a public thing. Christ designed faith for the office, for the home, for the school campus, the factory, the neighborhood, for everyday life. It's not a once a week thing on Sundays. It's for wherever you are, under whatever circumstances. Weren't our hearts burning within us? Christ comes alive and he must be expressed. I love that we're told these guys ran all the way back to Jerusalem. They ran back towards their problems. Instead of escaping, they ran towards the danger. The city, city was still a hot zone. Persecution was still a real possibility. It would have been safer, smarter to stay in Emmaus, but they went back to face it. Why? Because hope had returned to their hearts. Hope had returned, and that makes all the difference. So what road are you traveling this morning? What road are you traveling? Are you running low on hope? Is your personal hope meter kind of edging towards the red zone? If so, I want you to know that the resurrected Christ walks with you. He walks with you and he wants hope to blossom in your heart this Easter. A hope that is built on two things, a solid confidence in the power of scripture and a real experience of his risen presence. Christ is risen. And with his power, you can move beyond your doubts and go toward your toughest problems. He will give you the strength you need this week. I promise you that. He will walk with you in resurrection power. Recognize that he's there with you. 
Give yourself to him in your current circumstances. Don't wait for your current circumstances to change. Respond to him at the point where you are right now. Welcome into your, into your heart, into your life, and take your faith on the road. Share the hope Christ has planted in your heart. Share it with your family, your co-workers, your online friends. Be a messenger of his hope this week. Death defeated, sins forgiven, new life for all who will receive him. Christ is risen. Amen.